Welcome to the anointed and transformational teaching ministry of Pastor Walea Kinshiku, Senior Pastor of House of Praise Mississauga, Canada, a parish of the Redeemed Christian Church of God. It is our prayer that as you listen to this message, that you will be empowered to achieve your dreams and fulfill your destiny. God bless you as you listen. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you. Thank you for granting us, showing us mercy. Not that we have earned it, nor that we do deserve it. We don't deserve it. We have not earned it. You have just looked unto us with your eyes of mercy. Please, Father, receive our thanks in Jesus' name. Thank you so much, Heavenly Father, for giving us the privilege, Lord, to walk under your Holy Spirit, O God. As your Holy Spirit teaches us, O God, the deeper things of God. Blessed be your name forever and evermore. We thank you for the previous two Sundays. We are asking, Lord, that today, once again, teach us by your Holy Spirit. Let there be grass in the field for everyone. We thank you and we honor you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Academy of Faith Lecture 3. So, today, we're still talking about the Holy Bible, and we're going to wrap up this part of the Holy Bible next week, Sunday. Okay? Because this is the foundation of everything. It is, there's only one textbook, official textbook in Christianity, and it's the Holy Bible. So we need to believe in the accuracy, the reliability of it, so that we can submit under the authority of it. If you don't believe in the accuracy and reliability of the Holy Bible, you will never be able to submit under the authority of it. So we've done that for the last two Sundays, and today we're going to particularly look at this subtitle, How to Interpret the Bible correctly. How to interpret the Bible correctly. The technical name for this in Bible school is hermeneutics, but you don't need to bother about technical names. How to interpret the Bible correctly. Thank you, Lord. So today, we're going to try and cover Bible translations, understanding Bible translations. That's our lesson outline. We're going to try and cover also the difference between the different translations of the Bible and the suitability, okay? The suitability for, our, for, for how suitable they are for us, all right? We're also going to try and uh, cover uh, understanding Bible interpretation, and number four, the principles of Bible interpretation. This is what we want to cover today, all right? <clears throat> all right, let's start with Bible translations. Questions we want to ask ourselves, what is the Bible translation? What is the best Bible translation? There's so many Bible translations. I'm speaking right now because predominantly, of course, I'm speaking to uh, an English, English language audience. So, um, so I don't need to tell you that I'm speaking about English Bible translations. Okay, what is the best translation? And why are Bible translations so different from each other? Because they are so different from each other. All right. So. First, let's remind ourselves that we had spoken about the fact that the Bible was written originally in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. In the Old Testament, predominantly in Hebrew, except the book of Daniel and the book of Ezra. In the New Testament, predominantly in Greek. 
Okay, actually, not just Greek, but it's called koine. Koine is, is, is common language Greek. Okay, common language Greek. It's for easy, easy to speak. All right? Before it was translated. So Bible translation then is the rendering or presenting the Bible text from its original language into another language. All right? And Bible translation is usually done. <clears throat> this is very important. It's actually done by a group of scholars and experts in languages. So these are linguistic experts. Excuse me. Linguistic experts, experts in theology, and of course, historians, okay? And on some other areas of expertise, all right? Let's, let's keep going. Bible translations are so different from each other because the translations, this is the reason why they're different from each other. The translations are done to meet specific purposes of the user. Translations, the Bible's translation is usually commissioned by publishing companies like Thomas Nelson or Zodovan. They commission it and say, this is what we're going to do. And when they do it, they're doing it with a specific purpose for a specific kind of user, all right, in mind. Just stay with me. There is nothing like the best translation of the Bible. Keep that in mind. When people ask the question, what is the best translation of the Bible? There's nothing like the best translation of the Bible. So don't think best translation of the Bible. You, can, you only have the most suitable translation of the Bible. The most suitable. So instead of what's the best translation? No, it's what is the most suitable translation for me? What's the most suitable translation for me? And we're going to look at that as we move on. There are three main categories of Bible translation. So now, in some categorizations, I have to let you know, based on the principle of intellectual honesty, some people categorize that six different categories, five different categories, but there are actually three. Uh, uh, those other categories are just trying to split hairs. There are three main categories. You don't worry about the technical term, but I will not be doing justice to this school if I don't tell you what they are, all right? The first one is what is called formal equivalence. I will explain this in a few minutes. Second one is dynamic equivalence, and the third one is paraphrase, okay? So all the Bible translations you see, English Bible translations, them into these three categories. I will explain to you exactly what they mean in a few minutes. But the exact technical terminologies, you don't, you don't need to have a hang up on that. But you need to understand what they mean. The formal equivalence of the Bible is translation that seek to replicate word for word and, and the structure of the sentence of the original manuscript. So you have the original manuscript in Hebrew, okay? The way it's written, you know, Hebrew, English is written from left to right. Hebrew is written from right to left, okay? The way the structure of the Bible, the structure word for word, and the structure of the sentences, thank you, sir, and the structure of the sentences, the formal, the word formal there, the goal of the formal is to try and replicate it word for word and the structure of the sentence to the best ability. Sometimes it's not exactly, it can't happen like that. For example, in my, I speak only two languages. I'm not very good at speaking a lot of languages. So in, in, my, in my, I speak my native language is Yoruba and I speak English language. Well, I speak English language. I'm speaking English language now, you know. Now, in my native language, Yoruba, right, if you want to say, 
if I want to translate it into English, literally, to say, I've, I've read this book, I've completed, you know, I've read this book. It will, literally in English, it will be, I read this book, finish. <laughs> you see that? Now, that, that you, it, makes, it makes sense to you, but it's, in English, it looks, uh, that's not really, so you have to, if I'm going to translate what that person has said into English now, I will have to say, the person has completed the reading of the book, or you can put the sentence in another way. You get what I'm saying? But along the line there, you will know that it's still what is word for word, but the sentence structure in that particular way is just reversed. Right? Do you get it then? Okay. So, so that you understand that. All right. Okay. So, this formal equivalent translation, listen carefully, is suitable when you want to do a deeper or more comprehensive study of the Bible. If you're the type of person like me, definitely I will say, definitely I will say every pastor, okay, that wants to do a study of words, study of the words and all of that. You want to do a deeper comprehensive study of the Bible. You definitely need a Bible that is a, a formal equivalence translation. And I will give you examples of them in a few minutes. So this is what is suitable for you. If you want to do a deeper study, Okay, of the Bible. You want to do a deeper study of the Bible, what you need, you need a formal translation of the Bible. All right? What are examples of this formal translation? These are the examples. Okay? NASB is the New American Standard Bible. ESV is what I have here, the English Standard Version of the Bible. Okay? You have that. Of course, our beloved KJV authorized King James Version of the Bible, okay, and RSV, Reverse Standard Version, okay. These are, and of course, NKJV is a modernized English version of KJV. So, it goes without saying. So, this is what is called formal equivalence translation. If you want to do a, 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 a serious Bible study, you want to really, wants to start really doing some deeper study of the Bible. You need a formal equivalence translation. Is this making sense to us? Okay, so that's going to be your suitable. As a matter of fact, if you go to a Bible school, and you walk into a Bible school, if it's in America here, they will recommend NASB. That's it. That's the official rec they will recommend for you, NASB. Okay? If it's maybe somewhere in Europe, it's going to be ESV. Okay, or RSV. That's what they will recommend. That's the textbook for the class. The main textbook for the class. All right. So that is if you want to do a deeper study. Now, dynamic equivalence. What's the difference between what's this one about? Dynamic equivalence does not seek to render word for word or structure for structure, but it's for thought for thought. The overall meaning. So in other words, the people that did the translation, they take a look at the meaning of the, the manuscript, what it's saying, the thought that is being rendered there, and they translate that thought into the language they want to put in now. So it's not word for word. You can't do a word study with this one, okay? It's not word for word, and they look at the overall meaning of a, of a, of a verse, overall meaning of a sentence, and they render it in the language they want to translate it into. Are you following now? So this is suitable then for what? It is suitable, listen, this is very suitable when you are looking for a 
clearer understanding of the Bible and when a deeper study of the Bible is not warranted. So this is when you're just looking for a clearer understanding and a deeper study. You don't want to do word study. That's not what you want to do. You don't want to do all of that. But you just want a clearer understanding of the Bible or, or you're a new believer. This is the best translations for you, for a new believer. You're a young believer, a new believer, or you're a believer, you just, you don't want to be, you're not getting into doing some deeper studies of the Bible and all of that. This is the best translation. And what are the examples of dynamic translations? Our beloved New Living Translation. NIV. NIV, in some places they will tell you, is a functional translation. That means it's somewhere between dynamic and formal. You know, but really, leave it in this category. It's fine. I don't want to confuse you. Leave it in this category. NIV and NIRV. So let me say something to you quickly here. 90% of people, what you really need is NLT or any one of these dynamic equivalents because you're not going to do word study anyway. <laughs> to read it, verse, to read it, to read, just to even read the Bible, you're already facing challenges. So when I see young believers coming to church and carrying ESV, NASB, listen to me then. Don't, don't, you're just starting. Don't, don't harass yourself. You understand? If you are giving to it, fantastic. If you're giving to it, fantastic. But if you're not giving to it, you don't have the time. It takes time to really get in deeper into it, to really, to really you know, exploit. If you're not giving to it, please get yourself. You're reading it, you don't understand. You even find some people, they have KJV. And you're 21 years old. KJV was written in 1611. 1611, yeah, the year 1611. You're 21 years old. So how are you going to understand what is there. I know it sounds very powerful when you read it, but how are you going to understand it? Get yourself New Living Translation so you can get familiar with the stories of the Bible, get to understand it. Are you with me? Yes, sir. That's what is suitable for you. I, I used, I have all my lots of different Bibles as you can imagine, I, but my dominant translation you know, if you've known me for years, is NKJV, but I have NLT. Also I read NLT because I have a Bible in each category. So, because each category has its own suitability and is depending on what I want to achieve per time. Are you still with me now? Then what is a paraphrase? A paraphrase technically is not a translation because the translation has to be done by a group of scholars. A paraphrase usually is somebody that has a lot of credibility. They've, they've been, they might be theologians. They've been there for a long time. They've been Bible school. Of course, they have probably doctors in, doctors in divinity, doctor in ministry, and what have you. And, and they now do this. They seek to translate the Bible into easy-to-read language. But the disadvantage of it, and the advantage of it also, is that it comes with its own interpretation of the original manuscript already. So when you're reading a Bible translation that is a paraphrase, understand that there is already interpretation in it. It's not just rendering the manuscript either word for word or thought for thought. It's rendering it and putting the interpretation of the person in it already. 
Are you with me? Yeah, that's what a paraphrase does. So, an example of a paraphrase. So, it's usually written in modern language, contemporary language, and an example of it, the Philips New um, Translation, you know, uh, New Testament Translation, you know, TLB, Message Translation. Message was, translation was done by Eugene Patterson. Peterson. Eugene Peterson is late now, of blessed memory, great man, God bless him for the contribution he made to the body of Christ. You know, but understand that. It's very suitable for those who already know the scriptures and are with those who already know it and are willing to read it afresh in modern language. So if you are not familiar with the Bible at all, my recommendation to you would be don't start with the message translation. Don't start with the TLB translation. Start with the dynamic translation, New Living Translation. You get familiar, you know the stories, there's no interpretive content in it, okay? Then you can now start, if you want to, move, have this, and then you can, you can move on from that. Is that okay? All right. Is this helpful? Yeah. Okay. Now, okay, so let's, let me give you an example. Everything I've just said right now, let's walk through the example. See. So we're going to look at an example of Psalm 89, verse 6. Psalm 89, verse 6. I'm just taking one scripture just to show you the example of the differences. And you will see how difficult sometimes it is to crack open the formal translation because what we're trying to do with the formal translation is that we're trying to render it word for word, you know, structure for structure. Okay, so let's look at Psalm 89 verse 6 in the NASB. Look at what it says in the NASB. For who in disguise is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? This is NASB rendition. This is a formal equivalence translation. Let's look at the same thing in NKJV. Who in heaven can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to him? It's the same thing, right? Same thing. The only word changed there is heavens and skies. See? Let me remind you again. Who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? Who in the heavens is compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? So is that is formal equivalence. Now, if you give this to a new believer, say, okay, who in the heavens is compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? What is, who are the sons of the mighty? Oh, okay, sons of people that are very rich in the community, sons of people that are high, high up there politically, sons of, you know, this is, this is tough to read for, for a new believer. They don't understand. You can't understand. You read it, you just move on. It doesn't make any sense to you. So let's look at dynamic translation. New Living Translation. Who in all of heaven can compare with the Lord? What mightiest angel is anything like the Lord? You see now? Is this clear or not? Now, so when you read it now, it makes sense, okay, mighty, no, even if the angel is very mighty, it cannot be compared to God. Now, well, this one says, sons of the mighty. So you see the reason why the Bible, some, some people say, I read, you tell us to get into the world, read the Bible, read the Bible. I'm reading the Bible, I'm not getting anything. You can't get anything because the translation you're using, you can't understand it. So it says, mightiest angel. Now, look, look, look at this then in the NIV. Who in the skies can be compared to you? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? So it's, it's understandable. Now let me show you 
the paraphrase now. <laughs> now you will see the modern language, you will see that you need to have Bible knowledge a bit before you go back to that. Now see what it says in the message. God, let the cosmos <laughs> praise your wonderful ways. The choir of the holy angels sing anthems. Anthems? <laughs> anthems to your faithful ways. Search high and low. Scan skies and land. You'll find nothing and no one quite like God. Okay. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, it, it doesn't even hang on to your inner your, your, What do you read in the Bible today? Cosmos. Satellite, scanning devices. It, this, it, 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 it doesn't even sound like But the goal of this is not for you to make it your primary Bible. The goal of it is that if you come, if you don't have, if you're not doing any formal reading, just start with do your NLT. Mightiest angel, nothing like you. You understand mightiest angel. Then if you just want to have some fun while you're in bed, then read this one. You know. But if you want to sit down, you're sitting down, you have a study, you want to do some study, your NASB, the sons of the mighty. You can open it up, you can look at it, and so on and so forth. Are you still with me? Yeah. All right. So in summary, you choose your Bible translation based on its suitability to your present situation. All right? There's nothing like the best translation, and there's only the most suitable translation. So when next I see you and I ask you, I want to make sure, you have to make sure that it is the most suitable translation that you have with you. Say amen, please. All right. So let's talk about interpretation and application a little bit. How many of you have ever, have ever, uh, well, uh, this is, it's going to be a lot of us, of course, a lot of us, if not all of us. Maybe you've read the Bible for a whole week. And you couldn't really, you read it, but you really couldn't say you understand what was there. Ever happened to anybody here? Or maybe I should ask the question in a different way. How many people are honest in church today? (laughs) Because this has happened to all of us, and you're like, okay, God knows I've done my best. I actually did read it. And it wasn't that I was reading it when I was sleeping. I actually gave it my attention. But for the life of me, I actually don't know what I read there. Now, if you don't know what you read, how then are you going to apply it into your life? Because if you know these things, you are not blessed. Is this if you if you, blessed are those that that know these things and do them? John chapter thirteen verse seventeen. You have to know and do. Okay. Now, so let's talk about Bible interpretation and application a little bit. Bible interpretation. This is the function, a very important function, that is required to build faith in the reader. Without that interpretative, interpretative process, faith will not be battered in the reader, okay, through the Holy Spirit. Psalm 130, 119 verse 130, you will see it in a few minutes. It says, the entrance of your word gives light, but I will explain that to you in a minute, okay? When understanding of the scripture is lacking, faith will also be lacking, and the power of the Holy Spirit will be unreachable. When the understanding of the scripture is not there, faith will be lacking in you. See, what needs to happen when we read the Bible, the Bible, we've done this in the last two, two Sundays, 
The Bible is written by human authors, but and come on now, the Holy Spirit. So it has what is technically called dual authorship. Okay, fantastic. You're still you're brilliant students. Okay, so when you approach it, okay, when you look at the letters, you are only interacting with the human authors. You have, and the letter kills. You have to, in, to interact with the Holy Spirit. The, the attitude you need, listen carefully, the attitude you need to interact with the human authors is alertness. What is it? Yeah, just need to be alert. Once you're alert, it's just like any other book. You read it, you know what is in the book. If you go for the exam, you pass the exam. That's it. That's all you need. You will interact with the human authors. But alertness alone will not make you interact with the Holy Spirit. You see, alertness will allow you to interact with the human authors. But you need more than being alert. Humility. Humility is what will now allow you to interact with the Holy Spirit beyond the human authors. So that humility, which is demonstrated maybe in prayer, of course, you know, and so on and so forth. I won't get into that right now. Okay, it's what allows you to interact with the Holy Spirit. The human authors, if you interact with them only, it will not bear faith in you. That's what the Bible means when it says the letter kills. Okay, but when you are able to interact with the Holy Spirit, beyond and behind the human authors, that process, it births faith in you. That's what the Bible says is the author of our faith. It births faith in you. But in that process of interacting with the Holy Spirit, you know, you must, however, have an understanding, okay, to be understanding of the scripture, all right, to be able to get to that point. And that's what I want to, um, 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 I want us to explore today. Okay. Once you are able to interact with the Holy Spirit and that understanding comes, okay, you are touching right there, you are touching the power of the Almighty God Himself. Okay, at that point. Alright. So when the Bible says here, you know, this, remember this is a formal equivalence translation. When the Bible says here that the entrance of your word gives light, as a matter of fact, actually this word entrance here in the Hebrew, you know, that word entrance there. It's not entrance as in somebody enters into a door. It's, it's actually exposition or the opening up of your word. That's what it means in Hebrew. By the way, just even just gives a word. In, I actually studied biblical Hebrew and biblical Greek. I know people will say it's not necessary to study Hebrew and Greek. I get it, but I wanted to make sure that whatever I'm doing in this world, I'm not a mediocre in it. So I actually went to the Hebrew University of Jerusalem true. And I, 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 I took courses on biblical Hebrew. I took courses on biblical Greek. I have, biblical, I have the books at home. I'm coming from the retreat. I will have shown you. I have books at home where on the right hand side is Hebrew. On the left hand side is English. Right hand side is, you know, is Greek. Left hand side is Hebrew. So that I, can, I want to know this thing. Alright? Nobody's going to deceive me. Alright? And nobody's going to deceive you. So the entrance of his word means exposition, the opening up of that word. It gives understanding to the simple. So and then that's when faith now comes by the hearing, the hearing by the word of God. All right. Let's, let's continue. So 
a clear understanding and reminder of the basics of the Bible is important before we get into biblical interpretation. So you got to understand. Keep these basics in mind constantly. These basics in mind constantly. Church, are you still with me this morning? All right. The first basic I want you to understand, I want you to remember, we shared this already, is that the central message and theme of the Bible is redemption. Never forget that. The whole Bible, summarized, the whole Bible is, can be summarized in one word. That one word is redemption. That is the central message. That is it. From Genesis, when, when Adam um, I'm sinned and Eve and God came and took the skin of animals. To take the skin of animals means you'll have killed the animals. He's talking about blood. To cover them. They use fig leaves. God used the skin of animals. From that place, as you get into the book of Joshua, you see the red scarlet. You get the book of Exodus, you see the blood on the lintel, doorpost, okay? You get to the book of Joshua, you see the scarlet um, thread, right? Of Rahab, are you still with me? You move all the way, of course, all throughout the book of Psalms. You move into the prophets. You move, of course, and this, all these things. You move into the book of Leviticus. You see, it's all, about, it's all about redemption. Leviticus 17, verse 11. And then, of course, you move into the New Testament. In him, we have redemption through his blood. The Bible is about redemption. Then you get into the book of Revelation, we overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. So the central message of the Bible, once again, is what? Redemption. It's redemption. And the central personality of the Bible is what? The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. That is the central personality. Never forget that. The whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, the central personality. Now, in the Old Testament, this central personality is hidden. So, hidden. So, in, in the technical for, ta- terminology for that is that it's in types and shadows. But it's, it's hidden. It's types and shadows. In the New Testament, it's now revealed. It's the antitype. So, you now see the real substance of what was a shadow in the Old Testament. Are you still with me? Okay. Okay. So, there's the Lamb of God. Now, let me just show you that Jesus Christ himself said what I'm just telling you right now. Okay. That the Bible is about him including the places where his name was not mentioned. In the book of Luke 20, 24, Luke chapter 24, verse 44, this is what it says. Jesus is speaking. Jesus said to them, These are the words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written. Now look at what Jesus, what Jesus covered in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms concerning, concerning me. Now, the book of Leviticus is about Jesus. His name is not mentioned? Yes, Jesus said yes. The prophets, the Psalms, your name is not mentioned? He said yes. The prophets, your name is not mentioned? It, yes. It's about him. Another example. So, he <clears throat> opened up the understanding now that they might comprehend that scripture. That means they've been looking at those scriptures in isolation. They've been looking at it in isolation because they did not follow the central personality. So, when he now opened up the understanding to say, this thing is about me. Then the Bible says they are, they are now, now the people he's talking to here, they are very familiar with the book of Psalms, familiar with the law of Moses, the five, five books of Moses, you know, familiar, you know, with the prophets, they're familiar with it, they read it every Saturday, what we call Saturday now, you know, in the synagogues, they are familiar with it, but he now opened up their understanding to comprehend the scriptures. May you comprehend the scriptures. In the book of John, chapter 5, verse 39, it says, Jesus Christ was speaking. He said to the people, he said, you search the scriptures, the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. For these are they which testify, come on, of 
of me. You see that again? In John 5, 46, finally, it says, if you believe Moses, you will believe me. Jesus is the one speaking here. Why? He said, Moses wrote about me. So, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it's about Jesus. He is the central personality. Never forget that. Central personality. All right. Bible Basics 3. Understand this. Bible interpretation is not the same thing as application. They're different. I will explain to you in a few minutes. Okay? This, oh, this is a... If you've not been paying attention, please pay attention. Because this is the part that easily you could miss, but it's the critical part to your understanding and the furtherance of your spiritual growth. There is only one literal, keyword, literal interpretation of scripture. Let me repeat this. Because for us Pentecostals, we do have a lot of uh, issues in this because we mix our words and, and it's fine if you're mixing your words as long as you understand what you're saying but I want, to, I want to, to be careful here I don't want to rush this part there's only one literal interpretation of scripture that's what the Bible says when it says there is no private interpretation of scripture only one literal interpretation however there are endless insights into it and then there are multiple applications. Are you still with me? So usually, let me, let me just explain this to you. Let me jump a little bit. Listen carefully. Usually when we preach in church, particularly in, in, the, in, the, in the Pentecostal church, when we're preaching in church normally, we're not preaching interpretation. We're preaching insight. So we preach insight. All right? Not interpretation. The Pentecostals, that's what we do. We don't preach interpretation because it's too... It's too difficult for us anyway. So we just leave it in interpretation completely. So what we do is that we just preach insight and say this is what it is and we preach the insight. We get everybody all fired up based on the insight and then leave them to go and be applying it. And this is okay. It's good. But it causes a lot of problems because then what has happened is that there are many Christians there that are not stable. Many people are doctrinally ignorant. So they are easily deceived. Because somebody else now says, this is my own insight, the way I see it. Another person says, this is my own insight. God spoke to me. Another one says, the Holy Spirit spoke to me based on this particular insight. And then it's confusing. You say, well, I cannot tell. Maybe the Holy Spirit spoke to him. And but those people are actually damaging the scriptures. And they mess up people's lives. And you are trying to apply into your own life, so important a life, you are trying to apply just an insight that somebody said that is not coming from an interpretation that the scripture puts in place. Very dangerous. So, <clears throat> capture this place. One literal interpretation of scripture, endless insights of scripture, multiple applications of scripture only one literal interpretation endless insights multiple applications i'm going to say that again because it's so important one literal interpretation endless insights multiple applications how many literal interpretation of scriptures do we have all right 
So, interpretation then is the understanding of the meaning of the Bible passage as it stands. That's it. As it stands written in scripture. Understanding of the meaning of it as it stands written. That's what interpretation is. Insight is the illumination of the scriptures by the Holy Spirit. Adding depths to its literal meaning. Now, you see this part of this sentence that says, adding depths to its literal meaning. This literal meaning is interpretation. If you don't have this literal meaning, and you want to start adding depth to it, you are going to be in error. Are you with me? You are going to be in error. Now, what we do in Pentecostalism, in charismatic churches, what we do, and I'm, listen to me, I'm not knocking the body of Christ, I'm guilty of it as charged. I've done it myself. What we do is that because, you know, the literal meaning we feel that it's not, the, the crowd is not really getting excited about the literal meaning. <laughs> so we, don't, we completely jump the literal meaning. We go to the depths. So people, because people will say, that's deep. That's deep. And that's deep. Deep does not always mean good. For the Bible says in Matthew 15 verse 14, they are blind leaders of the blind. And when the blind leads the blind, they will fall into the deep. So deep is not always good. You see a lot of comments sometimes online, particularly from young adults. They say, ooh, that's deep. <laughs> and when you look at what the person has said and you measure it by the standard of scripture, that's actually erroneous. If you apply that into your life, you destroy your life. But they are blind leaders of the blind. And when the blind leads the blind, Matthew 15, 14, they fall into a ditch, a deep. They fall into deep, deep and you know, their life is ruined. So the, the security of your life and my life is the literal meaning. The measuring rod that will judge whether the insight is actually from God is the literal meaning before we talk, start talking about the depths and not to talk about application of our life. So the application is the actions that you and I now take based on the meaning of scripture and its relevance to our situation. That's the application. That's the application. This particular slide is very important when you go through your notes later on. All right, as be available on the app. Okay. Now, in conclusion of this part, this is important. If your literal interpretation is wrong, your insight will be filled with error and your application will lead to failure and disappointment. So this is what has happened to many Pentecostals when they will say, God told me, God spoke to me, uh, and, and they will run with something. And then five years, six years, 10 years down the road, you realize that nothing has happened. And they're now questioning God, but they did not rightly divide the word of truth. They did not rightly divide the word of truth. 
okay, then disappointment has happened. And they're wondering, but I thought God told me. But their insight was filled with error because their interpretation was wrong. So then, shall we go into Bible interpretation now? The principles of Bible interpretation. Now, <clears throat> there are many principles here. Okay, lots of principles. What I've just tried to do is to capture the simplest ones that the regular Christian can just apply. So I'm going to be sharing six of them with you. I will share four of them with you today. I'll share the remaining two with you next week, just because of time. Okay, share the remaining two with you next week, and then we'll move, because I also want to give you an assignment after this. So you're going to have an assignment, you're taking home, and please do that assignment. All right? And then, when we come next week, I will share the remaining with you. I'll add, I might, I might actually add a bit more to it, and then we're going to do a case study. I'll walk you through how to interpret that assignment you have done. I will now walk you through how to interpret that part. Okay. Basic principles of interpretation. Principle number one. The first principle you need to know is that when you approach your Bible, you must have the, the, in your mind what is called the God first principle. God first. So this is it. Particularly for Pentecostals, please listen to me very carefully. Please, my brothers and sisters, please listen very carefully. Particularly for Pentecostals charismatics. When you pick your Bible up, please, when you pick up your Bible, don't pick up your Bible for God to speak to you first. Don't approach your Bible with that mindset and just say, I'm taking my Bible, God speak to me, speak to me. Pick your Bible, this principle, what it really means is that you pick your Bible and you say, Lord, teach me. I want to grow. I want to grow. I want to grow. God first means I want to know you, Lord. I want to grow in you. I want to increase in the knowledge of you. Not just, Lord, speak to me how I'm going to pay my rent. Speak to me how I'm going to pay my mortgage. Speak to me who I'm going to marry. Speak to me, should I take that job or not? Speak to me, should I leave this country and go to another country? If you approach your Bible just based on that, you are going to put yourself in a very difficult situation. You're going to approach your Bible systematically with the primary intention, primary intention, not the only intention, but the primary intention is to grow. Come on, speak to me. Grow. Am I boring you? It's to grow. It's to grow. So you are, that's, that's, that is it. You want to know God. You want to know God. See? So the question you're asking yourself then, as you begin to read this, what does this passage teach about God? That's the question you ask yourself. You come across the passage, it's not what is this passage saying to me about my situation? No. Wrong. It's not a bad question, but it's wrong for it to be your primary question. The first question is, what does this passage? You remember the, the central personality in scripture is what? Is who? The Lamb of God, who is? Jesus Christ. So you're asking, what does this teach about God? That's the, cent that's the first thing. You are not the central personality. I am not the central personality. My situation is not the theme of the Bible. 
Your situation is not the theme of the Bible. Redemption is the theme of the Bible. So you, first, you have to approach it first. Nobody enters into a house, a massive house, no sprawling mansion, and you're crawling to the window. You go through the front gate. This is the front gate to reach the Holy Spirit. What does this passage say about God? Listen to me. The primary ministry, primary ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus. That's his primary ministry. Now, of course, he's our comforter, he's our helper, he's our advocate, he helps us to pray, he does all of that for us, but that's not the primary reason he came. The primary reason he came is to testify of Jesus, to glorify Jesus. So when you, and he's the one that wrote this book, okay, okay? So when you pick his book and you say, Holy Spirit, I bow my head to you today, I honor you. You're the one that wrote this book. Holy Spirit, I want to meet with you. Teach me today, teach me about yourself. Teach me about God. Speak to me through your word today in Jesus' name. And you pick it, you get to a verse. What does this Bible, what is this verse saying about God? You have caught the attention of the Holy Spirit. Guaranteed the Holy Spirit is there because that is his primary ministry. Are you still with me now? You remember what Jesus taught us? Seek first. And other things will now be added to you. All right? Then, you're asking yourself, what does it say? When we say, what does it say about God? Let me bring it home for you. You're looking for three things. When you're looking for what it says about God. Number one, you're looking for what does it say about the character of God? What does it say about the capability of God? And what does it say about the commitment of God? This is what you're looking for. This is how you will know God. If you are not growing in these three, th three areas, you are really not growing in your knowledge of God. If you're if you, you must grow in these three areas to grow in your knowledge of God. What at least these three areas, not the only things, but that at least in these three areas. What does this passage say about the character of God? The nature of God. What does it say about the ability of God? You know, sometimes you find some passages that will just speak about the character of God. Sometimes you find some that will speak only about the capability. And sometimes you just find some passages that just speak about the commitment to his covenant people. So anywhere you find that God's commitment to his, to, his, to, his, to his covenant people, it tells you that this is a God that is committed. It's committed. So in doing that, what you're doing is that you're getting to know God. Are you hearing me now? Okay. His character, his capability, and his commitment. Let's move to principle number two. Did you like that principle? Am I running too fast? Oh, okay. Just wanted to check. I'm always careful about the pace. Principle number two is the context of the verse. So you cannot take a verse of scripture without looking at it in context. This can never be overemphasized. Okay? In Bible interpretation, you have to look at the context. It means what is around it. And I'm going to tell you, show you now what it means. You have to seek to follow the author's thoughts which runs through a paragraph, rather than taking a verse in isolation and building a doctrine on, out of it. You can't take a verse in isolation, and many people have done that, and they built a doctrine out of it. I'm gonna be telling you, I think it's gonna fall into maybe October 8th, that's the class, the class of October 8th, what a doctrine is and how, what actually is a doctrine. For something to be, maybe I should just mention a few things about it right now. For something to be a doctrine, in Christianity, right? If you say this is a doctrine in Christianity, it must have, number one, 
some form of mention or allusion in the Old Testament, okay, it must have been mentioned or alluded to either implicitly or explicitly by Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. And it must have continued in the church, in the epistles. If not, it's not the doctrine. It might be a personal insight of somebody, but that's not the doctrine. You are not requested to follow it. That just freed a lot of people. Because a lot of things that people think is the doctrine, 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 is not actually what is called a doctrine. Okay? Now, so you must seek to also understand the verse of scripture in the context of the overall message of the Bible. And this is what they call scripture must interpret scripture. So no scripture is actually in isolation. You must be guided by other scriptures so that you don't, you don't run off course. Okay? So, but when we do the case study next week, you will do the practical. I will show you, we'll take it, and we'll take, you'll take a look at it, and you will see. You actually, it will actually be interesting what, what, what you will be seeing there. All right. Principle number three. Quickly, we're about to wrap up. Don't worry. About to wrap, wrap up this service. It's, oh, this is good. Ah, this is good. This is actually the main reason why I went to school for this. Historical background. Now, most Christians, the large majority of Christians, will never bother themselves about this. It is understandable. However, I need to let you know that there are certain, and I'll show you an example now, there are certain scriptures in the Bible that the conflict with present day culture. But you have to understand the historical background to really understand that part of scripture. So if you come across a part of the Bible or scriptures that you, you think to yourself, what does, this, what does this really mean? I don't really get this. Why is this so much of a big deal? It is the historical background that helps to throw light into that. Just give me a minute as I explain this to you. You will see in a minute. So because attempting to interpret certain aspects of scripture without understanding the historical background will lead to erroneous conclusions. All right? So let's look at an example. Let's look at a good example. Mark chapter 4, verse 30 to 32. Because you see, the Bible was written in a cultural setting. And remember I told you the first lecture, the Bible was written over 1,600 years, right? From 1440 BC to 100 AD. That's about 1,600 years. Written by about 40 authors over 55 generations on three continents. Okay? Within this land space of over 2,000 miles. All right? And in different places, from palaces to prisons. All right? Ezekiel wrote in Babylon. Paul wrote in Rome. All right? And you got to understand, it was written within a cultural setting. And sometimes you have to have a bit of an understanding of that culture or that cultural setting to have to understand the revelation God intends for us. All right. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 4, verse 30 to 32 now. Church, are you still with me? All right. So look at what it says. This is Jesus speaking now. Then he said, he said, to what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we picture it? So Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God. And look at what Jesus said. It is like a, it's like a mustard seed, which, 
when it is sown on the ground. Can we read that next statement together? It's smaller than all the seeds on earth. Now, you see, people that want to argue against the Bible's accuracy, they talk, these are the type of things they pick on. And when they pick on things like this, they say, um, and, and I'm going to show you now because I'm going to, I'm, we're going to add, use about two of the principles we've learned today now to, to help you with this. It's smaller than the seeds on all the seeds. So the people say, well, that's not right. Because this is, scientifically speaking, the mustard seed is not the smallest seed. <laughs> so if you are a scientist now, let's say you're a scientist, you're a botanist, or your father is a botanist, or you've come across this before you watch a documentary, and they tell you what the smallest seed is, and you're not reading this in the Bible, and it says it's, smallest, it's smaller than all the others, you say, no, that's not right. How can it be? So then all this passage, I don't understand what they're saying. Now, I use the simplest one for you today. You say, I don't understand, because the, the truth is that the smallest seed is not the smallest seed. So what is he really saying then? Huh. See you next week. <laughs> All right. So, but it goes on to say in verse 32, but when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all the herbs and shoots out large branches so that the beds of the air nest under his seed. So how do we resolve this issue? Explanation. Ah, the slide is not working. The mustard seed is not the smallest seed known to scientists. But among the Israelites, the Semites, that Jesus was talking to at that time, listen carefully, it was considered to be the smallest of seeds at that time in history. At that time in history, it was considered to be the smallest seed. So, It's phenomenal growth, the phenomenal growth, that one you cannot doubt uh, uh, scientifically. The phenomenal growth of the mustard seed was a basis of an, listen carefully, an analogy for the growth of anything, anything unusually small that becomes very large. So as at the time Jesus was speaking, on the streets in Israel, when he says to the people he was speaking to, and we're going to check that in a few minutes, when he was speaking to the people and he said, the mustard seed is the smallest seed, they understood exactly what he was saying because they understood that powerful analogy that it was the smallest seed known to them at that time. And also, the phenomenal growth of the mustard seed was a powerful analogy which they understood because right across the road was the mustard tree. Are you able to picture this? You know, and they could see the mustard tree that's right across the road, beds of the air come to, come to take shade on it. They could understand it that, oh, so something very small can become something very massive. And he was describing what is going to happen to the church. That we're starting here in Jerusalem now, just 12 people you see with me, 12 disciples with me, it's like a mustard seed, but it's going to take over the whole world. And that's exactly what happened. So Jesus was not addressing scientists. This is another part of the principle. 
you have to look at what the, who is the, where are the original audience? What do they understand by it? That's part of Bible interpretation. We'll look at those principles as we continue. It was not addressing scientists. It was addressing a multitude of common people, mainly Israelites. How do I know that? This is what the principle of context is about now. You just go up, 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 up that verse. You get to the beginning of it and you will see it. When they began to teach by the sea, who was he teaching? A great multitude. So the people he was speaking to was a great multitude of common people. This was not a lecture that was given in Oxford University to a bunch of scientists. All right? If that was it, he would have spoken to them on a scientific wavelength. He was speaking to common people. He was using an analogy that was common at that time. So the people that were hearing him, they did not ask questions about the mustard seed because they understood that analogy perfectly. Are you still with me? If you're with me, give Jesus some praise then. So the historical background is very, very, very important. There are many things you're going to see in the Bible that you need a bit of historical background. And even if you, that's, I'm talking about in your personal story, but if you, when you come to church and you're hearing pastors, teachers speaking to you, and we try our best to put it in historical context, to, to throw light into it so that they can make sense. When Jesus will say, you know, if somebody tells you to go with me to carry his bag for one mile, you know, make sure you go two miles. Hmm. When somebody slaps you on one, thank you, Lord. <laughs> when someone slaps you, one chin, turn the other one, let them slap you again. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> you know, you have to understand. Why is it that the people didn't ask Jesus questions? Because they understood what he was saying. But even things like we, scriptures that like we quote, I will build my church, the gates of hell will not prevail. What, what, what Jesus meant by gate is not what we mean by gate. Okay? It's not what we mean by gate. So we got to, that, that throws a little bit of more light into this. Praise God. Okay, principle number four, and let's wrap it up for today. Principle number four. The author's intention and purpose. This is for if you want to really, I'm, I was very reluctant in putting this one there, I must be honest with you. But I just thought, there might be one or two people that are here, a few people that are here that want to actually, this would actually challenge them to do some, a bit more, in, you know, study. Then you get yourself a study Bible. When you get yourself a study Bible, at the introduction to the book, okay, to, so if you take a book, with the book of, um, any book, any book there, Nehemiah, I just opened to the book of Nehemiah now, it has the, the author, Nehemiah, the occasion and dates, and it will give you the background information to what was happening at that time, okay? You see, the content, it tell you the background information. It's, you know, that's where you get the information from. And sometimes the information is embedded in the, is embedded also actually in the text, all right? Are you with me? So, every book in the Bible was written for a purpose. That purpose gives direction to the primary interpretation of that particular book. So, take the book of Job, for example, now. And I'm going to, and we're going to talk about this next week as, because we're going to do an ex example very soon. It's a little bit similar to the book of Job, but I just, the book of Job is quite voluminous. 
Um, but I wanted a smaller book. That's why I chose that one. But you will see in a few minutes. Take the book of Job. It was written for a particular reason. But when people go in there, they take isolated scriptures. Naked I came. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. So they take that scriptures. They quote it. They go and apply it immediately to their lives. The Lord has given. The Lord has taken. So something happens in their lives. They say, the Lord gives. The Lord takes. Hmm. Whereas when Jesus came, in John 10, 10, he says, the thief comes not except to steal. Uh-huh. So who is really taking? Who is really taking? We have to understand Job's issue. And even the people that were talking, who was actually speaking. Okay? Anyway, most authors of scripture, they state their purpose of writing the book so the reader is not misled. All right? So... I'm going to show you a table now, okay? Of course, you will see it on the slides on the app. It's all there. I'm just going to walk you through it. I'm almost done for today. The book of John, what's the purpose of the book of John? It's to promote faith in Jesus as the Son of God. It's there in John 20, 31, that it says that you may believe. Can you put that scripture on, on, on the other screen for me so I can read it out? John 20, 31, please. You know, there are, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Listen, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So if you read the whole book of John and your belief in Jesus as the Son of God, as the Christ, the Son of God, is not increased or enlarged or deepened, then you have really not come in contact with the Holy Spirit in that book. Are you with me? So all the miracles, signs, wonders that Jesus did in that whole book of John, the purpose of the whole thing is so that people can believe. You will see that in John chapter 2 verse 11. He manifested his glory. John chapter 2 verse 11. He manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. That is it. His disciples believed in him. The whole goal is so that the people can believe he is the Christ. So that explains why then I have to jump because of the way you're looking at me. I have to jump a little bit so that you can, it can give you more context. So that explains why you have to give me extra time. I have to explain this to you. In John chapter 5, John chapter 5, what is the purpose of the book of John again? That is the purpose of the book. Keep that in mind. So in John chapter 5, by the pool of Bethesda, there were many sick Many people that were sick, afflicted, had all manners of issues. And Jesus went into the place. Okay? Went into the place and went to one man only. The angels will come and stir up the water. Whoever gets in first will be healed. Jesus went to only one man and said, to the man, do you want to be healed? The man said, I have no man. And Jesus, the man said, the, man, Jesus, the Bible says he knew that he's been there for 38 years. He said, I have no man. He complained. And Jesus said, rise up, take your bed and go. And then the man rose up and walked, and Jesus walked out of the place. But there were so many sick folks there. So somebody would take that and say, you see now, God can heal just if it's only one person who wants to heal, he will heal only one person. It doesn't mean he will heal everybody. He left sick people there. But that was not the purpose. His purpose was that so that people can believe. If you read the story of that man, eventually he said to the man, don't sin anymore. The man, and he said, he said, do you believe? The man said, I don't even know who the Jesus is. He said, he... Let's get there. Open the scripture for me so that you can see. You're looking at me strangely. Come on, come on. Give me the scripture, please. 
John chapter 5. Let's read it. Start from verse 14 now. John 5, 14. God bless you. At our men's retreat, it was faster. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. Listen now. Listen, stay with me. Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more. Lest a worse thing come upon you. Keep going, keep going. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. All right? For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Keep going. Then Jesus keeps on saying, Find for me the place where Jesus told the man. And the man believed. Okay? Find that place for me there. All right? Because of one of time, we don't have to go through everything. Because of our time. Okay, the primary goal was for the person to be able to believe that he is the Christ. There were only seven miracles in the book of John performed by Jesus. And every one of them was for a particular reason. Okay, every one of them was for a particular reason. So you cannot use that what happened in the, by the pool of Bethesda to justify that Jesus heals only one person and leaves the remaining sick people there. Wrong interpretation. Wrong application. Disappointment. First Corinthians has caused so many, so much controversy. And I won't mention, I don't want to cause any controversy for you. I won't mention anything there, but it's caused so many controversies. But what is the purpose of it? Is to promote unity. But there are certain things that were written in First Corinthians that has promoted, promoted division. But the author wanted to promote unity. First Corinthians 1.10. His goal was to say, it says, now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. Keep going, keep going quickly. That there be no division among you. That's the goal of the book. But actually, there's a part of that book, and I won't mention it now, okay, for, out of respect, that has promoted a lot of controversy and a lot of disunity. But that's not the purpose of the author. The purpose of the author was writing to a particular local assembly, and he was saying to them, be of the same mind. So because I want you to be of the same mind, this is what I want you to do. We have taken it and brought it into places now whereby people are of the same mind and it has created division. That's not the purpose. Wrong interpretation. Galatians was to correct doctrinal errors. People were leaning on, they were doing works instead of grace. And he was trying to tell them they wanted to add works with grace. And he said, no, 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 no. First Thessalonians is to correct the false views of the return of Christ. The book of First John was, was to provide the basis for Christian assurances. Let's look at that one, First John 5, 13. Quickly. These things are written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, come on, come on, that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So it will give you the assurance of what you have believed. So when you read the book of First John, don't just read First John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, you are faithful, just and faithful, faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't just read that and take it and run away with it. I say, I like this book. You have to understand the primary goal of it is to provide an assurance for you that you have security in Christ Jesus, that I'm a Christian, but you know, if something has happened to me now and I fall, I know that the blood of Jesus will cleanse me and I can still continue to have fellowship with him. My relationship is secure, but when I sin, I'm out of fellowship. So when the, by the blood of Christ, I'm, I come back into fellowship with God. Are you still in the house? 
the book of Revelation, which most people don't want to read because they see one angel, fire, brimstone, thunder, there's lightning, there's jasper, there's one spiritual being that looks like an eagle here on this, in the front, an ox, he, you know, he has wings covering himself. And you see, and you see, I don't want to do this. But let me show you Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. You see what you are missing. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. So, he said, so this is the purpose of the book, Revelation of Jesus Christ. All right? And if you're not reading this one, how are you going to know Jesus? Because you will really not know Jesus if you don't read the book of Revelation. Because the people that were with Jesus physically, John the Revelator, John the Apostle, that put his head on Jesus' chest, okay, were just kind of feeling cool with Jesus. The, Jesus, you're right? Yeah, I'm right. Okay. And he was doing all of that. When he saw Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, he fell down as dead. Jesus had to touch him because, because he was seeing Jesus in his full manifestation. So if you've not read this, you've not really seen Jesus. You only know the carpenter's son. You don't know Jesus as the almighty God. If you don't have read the book of Revelation, you can never really believe in the all-powerful God. This is what makes you really know that God is in control. He's the all-powerful God. He said it there in Revelation 1.8. He said, I'm the almighty. That's Jesus Christ speaking. All right? But keep going anyway. What I really wanted to show you. Keep going. Verse 2. And it, it, verse 3. Keep going. Keep going. Blessed is he who reads. And don't see where the boss of this prophecy. So you are missing out on a major blessing. If you, have, if you don't read <laughs> the book of Revelation. It's, there, it's, the, it's the literal meaning. That's the literal meaning. Blessed is he who reads and who hears the words of this prophecy. That means that particular book. Okay? Every book, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God, but there's a blessing attached to reading the book of Revelation. Of, of course, Holy Spirit knows most people will run away from it. In conclusion. The Bible has only one literal interpretation. The Bible is full of endless insights. And the Bible has multiple applications. Come on, go ahead, give Jesus some praise now. Give him some praise, give him some praise. He deserves it. Jesus deserves it. Come on, let's give him some praise. Jesus, we honor you. You deserve the praise, Jesus. You deserve the honor, Jesus. To you be the glory, to you be the honor. Blessed be your name, Jesus' name. This is the assignment I want you to do. Coming up next week, I'm going to teach you how to apply and what you read, a case study. I want you to read the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth, four chapters. Read it, please, next week. It's all on the slide. Don't worry. It's all on the app, rather. You see it on there. But read the book of Ruth before you come. And we're going to take, I'm going to add a few more principles that I'm going to be teaching you by God's grace on Bible interpretation. And we're going to use the book of Ruth as a case study. We'll walk through a few of it. Okay. I'll take a few of the controversial verses and see through light on it in light of all the other principles we've learned. Is that okay? Were you blessed today? Thank you, Jesus. Jesus, we honor you. Jesus, we give you the glory forevermore. Blessed be your name, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Jesus Christ taught us that his house will be called a house of prayer. So we're not shy to pray in church. It is normal to pray in church. Jesus Christ told us this is one of the indices you have to use to know whether it's my house, whether 
it is my house. If you go into a place and you see a bunch of people, okay, the size of the crowd is not how you know. You know, the excitement, the shouting of the crowd, it might not even be how you know, but are they praying? My house shall be called a house of prayer. Mark eleven seventeen. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Many people have their own houses and they have ways to know if it's their house. But my own house, the way you will know Jesus Christ was speaking is that it will be a house. Come on, speak to me. Of prayer. So are you ready to pray? All right. So we're going to pray. We're going to pray because God has given us a word for major breakthroughs. And there's somebody that is here today, you are going to experience major breakthroughs. All right, I knew it. The person might be somewhere at the back there, or maybe the person is next to you. You are going to experience major breakthroughs. Major breakthroughs are coming your way in the name of Jesus Christ. So, here is the story of Jesus Christ, and I've preached, so I don't want to get into the details of it right now. And, but when, this was when he was lying in the grave, and the people remember the Roman soldiers in the, 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 the the, the scribes, they remembered that when Jesus was alive, when he was alive physically here on earth, he, he, he kept on saying, I will, uh, you know, I will deliver into the hands of the son of, son, of my, son of man, you know, they will treat me, they will mistreat me, and they will kill me, you know, they will kill him, and then bury, and then put him in the grave, you know, but on the third day, he said, I will rise, on the third day, I will rise, he said it several times, so the people got afraid that he will actually rise on the third day, and, but I want to say to you quickly, whether they are afraid of it or not, or concerned or not, he will rise again. So they came to the Roman, they came to the Roman authorities and said, Listen, this guy was saying he was going to rise. Please, we want to go and make sure that the tomb is secure so that nobody comes to pick him up. We want to make sure help never reaches him. So he told them in Matthew 27, 65, Pilate said to them, You have a guard, go your way. <laughs> make it as secure as you know how to. And that's exactly what they did. They went their way and they made that tomb secure. It was the most secure tomb ever. Very secure. But the, what they did, so they thought help would come from the outside and, and, and help, they blocked every help from the outside. But what they did not know, the Bible says, now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And verse 2 says, Behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended. Come on, speak to me now. From heaven, he didn't come from the streets of Jerusalem, he came from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. Listen to me. He rolled back the stone. There are many stones there. He didn't just roll back any particular stone. He rolled back the strategic stone covering the door. The one stone that if I roll this one back, we will see that the tomb is empty. The one stone that if I roll this away from this door, this particular door will be open. Think about it. Think about it. Every man in life is standing before a door. The door either opens or doesn't open to you. If a strategic door opens to you in your Kairos moment, the labor of 20 years can reach your hand within a year. A strategic door opens to you in a moment, in your Kairos moment. They knock on your door. Genesis 14, 41, 14. And it says the king calls you and the door, the door to the palace opens to Joseph in one moment. 
that changes the whole pain. The whole pain you've been through. The whole pain you've been through for the last 15 years, the last 10 years, the last three years, the pain you've been through. You're crying, sobbing yourself to bed. You've cried, you've sobbed yourself to bed. You've rolled, you've shared with people. People don't understand the pain. There are times when you communicate, even to pastors, even to me, I can't understand the gravity of the pain of what you've been through. But God knows, today he's going to roll that stone away. Today he's rolling that stone away. Not only is he rolling the stone away, he rolled the stone away and he sat on it. That means, dear me, the stone was rolled away, it will never be rolled back. Listen, God never does anything on this earth without saying it first. God never does anything without saying it first. Because God is spirit, he speaks it through people. It has to be said first. That word has to go first because the power of the Holy Spirit is not the first manifestation of God on earth that you're going to see. For you to see something physical on earth, it's not the power of the Holy Spirit. You can see the presence of the Holy Spirit is there, but the power of the Holy Spirit always follows the word of God. Always follows the word of God. Never forget that. That's why the speakings of God are so important. So important. So today, by the authority of the word of God, I'm going to declare this over you today. And I want you to understand by the anointing of the Holy Spirit and by the apostolic assignment he has given us by privilege, I declare this over you today. Good news is coming to your home. Good news is coming to your home. Good news is coming to your home. It's coming to your home. It's coming to your home. Good news is 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 coming to your home. In the name of Jesus Christ. If you receive that, give him a shout of praise. Hallelujah. This is the end of the message. We are sure that you have been blessed. For more information, please visit our website at www.houseofpraise.ca. God bless you.